This episode of the Heart of Giving podcast is made possible with the generous support of Be Generous, a firm that enables donors to give now and pay later. You're listening to the Heart of Giving podcast with Art Taylor, powered by BBBgive.org. Here, we explore the motivations that form the basis of giving and service. We inspire generosity and celebrate the transformative effects that giving and service have on the human spirit and on community. The conversations featured on the podcast also uncover giving strategies that educate and provide tools to help listeners make impactful gifts of both their time and money. We hope you enjoy this episode. Welcome to the Heart of Giving podcast, powered by BBBgive.org. Give.org is the nation's standards-based charity evaluator, and it's your one-stop source for information on giving and reports on the most asked about charities. I'm Art Taylor. Well, you know, there are so many ways that people and organizations can provide social good. Sometimes it's directly serving people and causes Other times, it's serving the institutions that are providing support to people and causes. And obviously, one of the key areas for any institution that's providing social good is fundraising. It's been said that there can be no mission without money. And there can be no money without people out there asking others to contribute and giving people the opportunity to support the causes that matter to them. Well, today we're going to speak with a business that is set up to help organizations with their fundraising, and they're doing this in some innovative ways. They're providing information to fundraising leaders, and they're providing tools that organizations can use to improve and strengthen their fundraising practices. And so today my guest is Tim Kachuriak. Tim is the founder and chief innovation and optimization officer for Next After. Next After is a fundraising research lab and consulting firm that works with businesses, nonprofits, and NGOs to help them grow their resource capacity. Now, Tim is a nonprofit thought leader. He's the author of the book, Optimize Your Fundraising. He was the lead researcher and co-author of Online Fundraising Scorecard, Why Should I Give to You? And he's also involved in the writing of the mid-level donor crisis. Tim has trained organizations in fundraising optimization around the world and is a frequent speaker at international nonprofit conferences. Tim, welcome to the Heart of Giving podcast. Art, thanks for having me on. And can I just say, I do a lot of podcasts. You have like the best podcast <laughs> voice of all time. It's just like so soothing and I can just listen to you talk all day. Well, thank you for that. I also have a face that's perfect for podcast. <laughs> 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 well, listen, uh, so Tim, let's talk about you for a minute. Um, how in the world did you decide to set a career at helping nonprofits. Where, where does this idea of yours come from that 
nonprofits need actually the support of businesses to do their work well. Well, yeah. I mean, like most people that work in the nonprofit space, I came in from a very indirect path. So my story is I grew up in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. I graduated from college right after 9-11, which was a horrible time to enter into the job force. And especially for somebody like me who desperately wanted to work in the field of advertising and marketing. But fortunately, I worked at a country club all during high school and college. So I had 432 aunts and uncles that were captains of industry. So, you know, when I needed a job, I just called Uncle Joe, right? And, and Joe was the, the president of the country club. But he was also the president of the second largest ad agency in Pittsburgh. And so I went and met with Joe Blattner and did my little dog and pony show. And he's like, oh, I'd love to hire you, kid. But, you know, we just laid off 30 people yesterday. 9-11 hit our industry hard, our agency harder. I can't help you. And it was like that, like just time after time after time, just getting doors closed in my face. And so about six months of just kind of wandering around the wilderness, trying to find somebody to give me an opportunity. I met this serial entrepreneur and he had all these little businesses that he operated. And he said, well, you know, you could do some freelance projects for me for some of these, these little companies I have. And then he said, why don't you start a business? I was like, well, I don't know how to do that. And he's like, well, I do. We've got an incubator on the second floor of our office building. I'll give you a desk. I'll be your partner. I'll introduce you to people. And the rest is up to you, kids. So I'm like, sounds great. I mean, I'm living in my parents' basement. I've got no overhead. I mean, it's just like the perfect time to start a business. And I learned a lot. I mean, I learned about like, you know, how to go get customers and keep them happy and like service them. And I eventually built a small staff and I had rent and I had bills and I had payroll and I had to figure out how to pay people at the end of the week when I didn't have money on the, the beginning of the week. And it was just like a really great learning experience. And so I did that for about five years. And Right around that time, my church was doing a capital campaign to build a new building. And I was like, well, look, I do marketing. I can go and help with that capital campaign. It was the first time that I was doing something that I felt like I was wired to do marketing, but for a cause I cared about. I was like, this is kind of cool. And so I couldn't go back to like making car dealership websites and websites for lawyers anymore. And so I went on this quest just to say, well, what do I want to do with the rest of my life? And a good friend of mine had just taken a job as an executive vice president for a nonprofit in South Florida. So I called him up and he's like, why don't you come check it out? And I leave Pittsburgh. There's six inches of snow on the ground. I get to Fort Lauderdale Beach, right? Where the interview is at the Aruba Beach Cafe. I'll never forget this place. Like the sliding glass doors are open and the waves are crashing onto the shore. And the guy's like, bling, 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 bling. And so I was like, man, this is looking pretty good. So anyway, long story short, I went to go work for a nonprofit. The day I got there, the founder of the organization who had been there for 35 years had a heart attack. Now, I should point out, Art, that the correlation is not causation. At least I hope not. I hope I am not the reason. But we went from like a $36 million a year organization to 18 after the, the founder passed away. And so I was hired to do you know, digital communications. They said, look, whatever you're doing on the internet, figure out how that generates new donors and revenue because we're, you know, we're dying. So that was my first violent shove into fundraising. And then I ended up going to work for a couple agencies and became obsessed with trying to figure out how do we optimize giving. So that's that's what I do here today. Well, that's that's great. That's a terrific story. And it is true for many people, including me. You know, you start out in business, um, not even thinking about a nonprofit, and then suddenly an opportunity comes up and it leads you into that space. I've talked to many guests on this podcast who've had a very similar story. You know, they had no idea they'd be working in nonprofits or in support of nonprofits, and yet here they are. Well, you know, what's so interesting too is that you've developed this passion, it seems, for helping organizations 
improve and optimize fundraising. And we're certainly at a time, and our guests will remember me saying this a lot too, where we really need to figure that out because we're losing donors. We're losing donors by droves. Even though the number, the amount of money charities are raising is going up, the amount of people giving is going down, 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 down by a lot. So we need to figure out not only how to help organizations raise more money, but we also need to help them figure out how to raise money among people who don't presently give. And I don't know what your thoughts are about this, but I'd love to hear it. It seems that as a society, we're growing increasingly more diverse. And I just wonder if in charities thinking about optimizing their fundraising, they tend to focus on where they know the dollars are more likely to come in. Absolutely. No, I I, I agree with you. Therefore, they're focusing less on places where they could come in, but they're not quite sure how to reach those audiences. But yet in the future, those are going to be the audiences. And it may also be why we see more money coming from wealthier people and less money coming from the everyday donor who now may be more diverse and less connected to philanthropic organizations. I don't know. What's your thought about that? Yeah, I, I, I think you've absolutely nailed it. So my observation is that that trend that you're mentioning where you're seeing more money being raised in the nonprofit space, but less donors that are giving to the cause, I think that that's a self-fulfilling prophecy. And what I mean by that is because as organizations have become more and more sophisticated and they're getting better at targeting and segmentation and all these things to try to maximize yep. ROI and you know increase the, the amount of net revenue raised, they're excluding certain donors or donor segments or communities or populations of people. And those people, see, here's where I get like, kind of like on fired up. Those people don't get to experience the miracle of generosity. Right. And I don't care how much somebody gives. I, I just want every single person to experience that because what it does, it's so countercultural. Like our culture is all about like, just like, you know, getting everything for ourselves and feeding our own desires. And it's all about you, 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 you. And that's the messages that we're constantly seeing out in the marketplace. And so as a fundraiser, every once in a while, we get to break through that. And we get to expose people to this opportunity to not just go and take all of what they have and spend it on their own wants, needs, interests, and desires, but start looking towards the wants, needs, interests, and desires of others that don't have the same resources that they have. And I think that that just getting more people to give, that makes the world a wonderfully better place. So that, that's where my passion is. Yeah. Well, you're absolutely right. And, and it makes the organizations, in my opinion, more independent too. You're right that we are able to help people by encouraging them to give because there is a value, I think, that we all get from donating. Sometimes we'll donate and boy, it just feels like it's a little tough to do. You know, wow, I got to like give away something that I've earned to this thing. But as soon as we let go of that money, we feel better. 
soon as we let go of that money and we don't think about it as ours anymore, we think about it as a gift or a contribution or support that we've given to a cause that matters to us, we feel good. We feel good. And I think feeling good can't be a bad thing in this complex and challenging world that we're living in. So I completely support that idea that let's give more people the opportunity to not only affect the lives of others, but to give their, their give themselves a lift. That's right. By making these donations. So Well, and it, it, to your point too, it also creates greater stability for the organization, right? Because if you're relying on fewer and fewer donors that are writing bigger and bigger checks, if you lose one of those donors, you are very vulnerable, right? You're in a situation where you you now have to figure out how to plug that gap. And probably it's not a gap that you can easily plug, right? And so that that becomes a, a way of really diversifying your donor base and having lots of donors that are giving smaller amounts is a better strategy for longevity of the organization. Yeah. And strings, right? I mean, larger donors tend to want to see things happen a certain way. <laughs> There's nothing wrong with that. Right. Unless it's throwing the organization off mission. But I think organizations need to be free to pursue the best avenues to accomplish their objectives. And we don't necessarily want uh, funder, funders to have an outsized influence on how that occurs. So that's that's something else to think about. Well, talk to me about how your work helps with all this. Yeah, absolutely. So one thing that I've, I've come to the conclusion about is that there's no such thing as fundraising experts, right? I'm not a fundraising expert. Nobody is. The true experts are the donors themselves. And so what we really encourage organizations to do is to humble themselves and actually like really seek out the perspective of their supporters and really learn from them. And I'll tell you how we do that. So like at Next After, we've structured our organization to be really three things. We're a fundraising research lab, we're a consultancy, and we're a training institute. And I'll explain how those three pieces fit together to kind of form our value proposition. So starting first with the research, we do two types of research at Next After, both forensic research and applied research. And forensic research basically means we're analyzing large amounts of data across the nonprofit sector, across multiple verticals within the sector. And what we're looking for is patterns that lead to opportunities to unlock greater fundraising performance. Here's the challenge. The perspective that we're trying to understand is the perspective of our potential donor. And so we found the best way to capture that perspective is by becoming donors ourselves. And so that's what we do. About four times a year, we'll launch one of these mystery donor studies where we'll go and subscribe to 100 or more organizations at the same time. We'll monitor everything that they send us, every email, every text message, every voicemail. We get boxes and boxes of direct mail. We parse through all those pieces of correspondence, and we wait for the organizations to invite us to become a financial contributor by making a gift. And when they do that, we go online to their website, and we go through the process of giving an online donation as small as $20, as large as $5,000. And then we continue to monitor how these organizations communicate with these new donors over time. Like what we're trying to understand is that donor journey from being like a casual visitor to subscriber to donor and beyond. And Art, it is fascinating. <laughs> What's always so interesting to me is how wildly varying the communication experience is from organization to organization. And so when we do these studies, we see things that we're like, wow. This is interesting. Let's go and take some of these things and test them in the marketplace. So that's the other kind of research we do is we use the web. If you think about the internet, 
the, 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 probably the greatest gift of the internet is it's created the world's greatest behavioral laboratory that's ever existed. Because I don't have to go and guess or pull or do surveys. I can actually go serve two versions of the same donation page, for example. And I can monitor how people respond to those things in real time. So then I can learn about what really does work. I can allow the donors to teach me through their behavior how to best message them to be more generous. And so that's kind of what we do. And we take everything we learn. We bring it over to our institute, which is all about training and equipping and resourcing nonprofits. And then we also have a consultancy that works directly with nonprofits to help them integrate some of the things we've found through our research that really work at driving new donor revenue. So that's that's kind of how it works. So when I think about fundraising, I think not so much about the fundraising results, because that's the easiest thing to count, right? The easiest thing to count is, did we raise more money than we did last year or last period or whatever it is? Did we increase the number of donors? Did we increase the average gift size? All those metrics are really easy to to count and keep score of. And they may be what we might call lagging indicators of how well the fundraising infrastructure is inside of that organization, right? The fundraising actual performance and work that's going on, but not necessarily, right? Because we may also know that the organization got lucky this year and maybe, you know, maybe it just Hmm. uh, reached the right people who had the right amount of money and certain things just broke well for that organization this year and have absolutely nothing to do with the quality of its fundraising operation. And so I believe that the quality of an organization's fundraising operation will tell us more about how consistent they will be in their fundraising over the long term. What's your thought about that? Are you seeing any uh, information that would tell us that there's a certain quality of operation that's really important, not simply measuring whether the organization raised more money this year than last. So for instance, I mean, an organization might have a great fundraising organization and numbers might be slightly down because we're in a in an environment where people can't give as much or people have shifted their donations to a right. particular thing this year. Maybe it's COVID or something like that. So we might see, for instance, fundraising declines, even though the organization is doing the right thing. And I don't know how organizations can assess that, but that's one of the things I'm curious as to whether you're getting any insight on. Yeah. I mean, I I would agree with you. Like if you're looking at just top line numbers and you're looking year over year, do we raise more than we did last year? And like saying that is the definition of success. I would, I would agree that that is, that's, that's nonsense. There's so many things that happen in the external environment that can affect fundraising based on the kind of organization you are, the cause that you represent, or you know, other factors that yeah. wouldn't play out in just top-level metrics. But I do think that most nonprofit organizations, from my experience, are not really using the first-party data that they have and that they've collected based on their, their donors' engagement and Got using it. that to drive strategy. 
And so that that's kind of like really what I think is like the biggest missing piece is that like we're not really looking at the entirety of, of the data. For example, how many people are opening and clicking? How is our email file growing? Are people engaging? Are they downloading content? Are they commenting on things when we post on social media? These are, This is all part of like the quality yeah. kind of index that you're talking yeah. about. They're still behaviors. So I, I think what you're talking about is also something a little bit different is like how do we assess the fundraising organization itself? Do we have the right staff? Do we have the right resource allocation? Yep. Do we have the right leadership in place? Which is a whole nother part of the, the question. But you can use some of this individual data to start to at least form hypothesis about things that may be broken inside the program. And I'll, I'll leave you with like one, one more thing that I think is, is, is a challenge for most organizations. Everybody talks about lifetime value. Everybody says that that's really what we're basing our decisions on, but it's 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 not happening, right? So if you really truly are focusing on creating long-term value for the organization, you probably will do certain things that will have you drive less revenue today, but it's building more lifelong partnerships with donors that are going to give more over the lifetime of their relationship with the organization. And that's really, really difficult for nonprofits to do. There's very few that I've met that have actually made that kind of mindset shift and say, I'm willing to take less in this you know, annual fund year in order to go and maximize the value that I'm going to bring in for the organization over the lifetime. So that's, that's a challenge. So when we talk about optimization, we're probably also talking about the things that you're seeing that organizations are or are not doing that as a result, it makes us say they're leaving money on the table. What are some of the top things that you're seeing that organizations are doing and not doing that if they, if they could fix, you know, they, they might do better? Yeah, I'm going to give you a couple of real tactical examples. So, for example, email fundraising. So, you know, when it comes to digital revenue generation, emails probably the brings in the lion's share of the revenue for most organizations online. And if you look at most nonprofit fundraising email appeals, they kind of look similar. They've got like HTML design. There's lots of images and graphics and there's big clickable buttons that say donate now. And if you read the copy, it sounds like it's written from a professional copywriter because it usually in fact is. And the challenge with that, which everybody does, by the way, is that when a potential donor sees that in their inbox, all they see is somebody trying to market to them. And what we've understand is something that people that have done fundraising for hundreds of years have known is that people give to people, not to email machines, not to direct mail campaigns, not to websites, not to events. People give to people. And so the more that we can humanize our communication to make it feel more genuine and authentic, like a one-to-one -one conversation, the more effective it is. So we've, we've done experiments where we do an A-B split test. We'll take the nonprofit's very highly designed email. We'll create a new version which is like plain text and like, it's very simple language. It sounds like, you know, if, if, Art, if I was sending an email to you, it'd sound like an email that I was sending to you, like a friend to a friend. And what we find is when we run that AB split test, 200, 300, sometimes 500% higher response rate to the plain text version than the design version. Wow. So it's, it's little things like that that every organization could do. And honestly, it takes less effort. Yeah, like, I don't have to go hire a designer. I don't have to get an HTML programmer. I can just write a message from my heart to your heart and I'll have a better success rate based on our research. So it's things like that that are very unintuitive that actually really bring in the, the increases. Yeah. So why do you think that is? What's going on with us that we are willing to accept that kind of thing and we see this other thing as a marketing 
a marketing opportunity as opposed to something that we want to pay some attention to. What's what's happening? Do you know? Or is it just uh, an association? An association or is it real stuff happening here? There's there's a number of things. Number one, marketers or fundraisers, I'm gonna include them in that that classification. We have a tendency to design things that we like, right? We have a tendency to design things that the organization leadership likes. Oh, doesn't this look pretty? I'm going to go show it off in the board meeting. They're all going to be like, that's going to be awesome. We don't consider the true audience of the donors, right? And if we did, we would probably test our way out of creating highly designed emails. So that's what number one is like, we are not the donor. Number two, the reason why I think the, the less designed email really works really effectively is because... The strategic thing that I mentioned, which is people give to people, not to email machines, like giving is a relationship kind of experience, but there's a technical reason too. And it has to do with like how email service providers operate. So email service providers, like if you have Gmail or Yahoo or something, they want to provide a very good service to their customer. Their customers, the people that use their email system, right? And they know that if their customers are getting a lot of like spammy or marketing emails, then it's probably not a really good experience for their customer. So what they started doing is they start looking at the code that is contained within the email. And if it has lots of HTML, if it has lots of images and graphics, they said, oh, that's probably not from a person. And my customer probably doesn't want that in their inbox. So I'm going to either go put it in the spam folder or I'm going to go put it in the promotions tab. And so one of the reasons why the plain text works more effectively is because it shows up in the inbox as opposed to the promotions tab. So there's a technical reason why it works really effectively as well. Ah, now we're getting somewhere. (laughs) (laughs) Well, no organization wants to be branded as a spammer, right? So, you know, you, you won't be able to get anything through and... I know that there are these filters, from what I understand, that block certain email senders so that they don't actually get that's through. Right. So that's something for organizations to think about for sure. Now that we've said it, I'm sure that the emailers will come up with a way to block that too. But <laughs> Maybe. It's, it's harder. It's harder. But again, if you think about it from the standpoint of like not the technical reason, but the strategic reason, which is like yeah. you really want to build a relationship yeah. with your donor. Now, I'll tell you this. Sure. When you send those plain text emails, guess what goes up? Yeah. The number of replies you get. So you need to be prepared mm. to have people that talk back to you. And you're like, oh, my gosh, I don't have time to deal with you. And like, well, if you don't have time to listen to what they're responding to you about, why should they give you the time to go and read your fundraising appeal, right? So it's kind of like just good manners and human nature. And some somewhere along the way, we've lost those when it comes to mass marketing. <laughs> I also wanted to talk to you a bit about peer-to-peer fundraising. You kind of hinted at that. But what are we seeing in terms of trends toward peer-to-peer fundraising? where people are getting other friends to give to causes that actually matter to them. And maybe that relates a bit to what you've said about creating these personal relationships, but what's your thought about peer-to-peer fundraising? So what I would say first and foremost is it's not for every organization. And I think that that's sometimes how the technology companies sell it is like, Oh, you can do peer-to-peer campaigns. Well, just because you can, doesn't mean you should. Okay. They work really well for like the run, walk, ride kind of programs where it's like, I need to go get people to sponsor me. I'm going and doing this thing. Will you sponsor a mile? Will you sponsor a mount? In those scenarios, it works great. But for other scenarios, for just like the run of the mill nonprofit organization, go give because I'm asking you to, it doesn't really work. And the other reason it doesn't really work very well is because 
people get discouraged. They'll go and post something on social media and nobody will respond to their fundraiser. And they're like, oh, well, forget it. And they bug out. And there's nothing from the organization that's going to keep them engaged and give them basically a playbook of how you can be successful with peer-to-peer fundraising. So I think it's something to be careful. I think, again, it works for some, not for everybody. Let Let me throw this out at you for a minute. So we've been talking about getting cash gifts which obviously is the lifeblood for many organizations. But what about volunteers? Mm. Have you thought about how we should appeal to people to get them to support us as volunteers? Because I know lots of organizations kind of depend on volunteer support as well. Have you done any work on that? Yeah, we've found like some of the same techniques that work at generating an online giver also generates like somebody that will say, hey, I'm interested in actually helping and volunteering my time. We've done some interesting studies, too, where when we ask for people's time first and then money, we actually get more money. (laughs) Right. Because if you think about it, like the time commitment is a much bigger. I mean, that's a much bigger ask, in my opinion. Right. Asking me to give mm-hmm. my time. Yep. Uh, and so if somebody says, well, I can't give my time. I'm like, OK, cool. Would you would you mind contributing twenty five dollars to help us go accomplish the mission? And people are like, yeah, I, I can do that. Right. So we've, we find that like tying those two things together is actually one of the helpful ways of, of you know, generating value. So you mentioned that you also have uh, a consultancy. So you actually go in and help organizations deploy some of these ideas. That's right. That's right. So the first step that we take with every client that we work with is we do this 12-week study of their organization where they give us access to all of their first-party data. So like all of like their donor transaction data, all of their email data, all their social data, all their app data, web analytic data. And the reason why is because we have to piece it all together. Most organizations have their data living in these like independent data silos, and it doesn't really connect to each other. It doesn't talk to each other. And so we have a team of data scientists that puts it all together and say, okay, here's your real true picture of your organization's fundraising program. Here's the areas where you have, you have gaps. Here's some areas where we think we can actually really optimize and help the program get to the next level. So we kind of then put together like a three-year roadmap and build financial pro forma. And then if the organization wants help executing the plan, then we provide services to go help execute. Yeah. It looks like a big chunk of your business is based on being able to utilize technology. Am I, am I wrong in saying that? Well, yeah. I mean, because we focus really on digital revenue generation, obviously mm-hmm. technology is, is very critical, mm-hmm. but we're not a technology company. And okay. our clients use a whole plethora of different kinds of technology. So we have to become masters of all of them. We say, look, we're, okay. we're technology agnostic. We don't care what you use. Mm-hmm. However, don't let your technology drive your strategy. Develop mm-hmm. your strategy, your strategic plan, and then select the right technology mix to be able to go accomplish what you need to be able to do. So through your processes, mm-hmm. how much would you say organizations are able to actually improve their fundraising proficiency? Well, we have clients where we work with them and they were initially raising about $800,000 online and now they're raising $22 million online over a period of five years. So we've seen some significant growth. Typically, we'll work with an organization and our goal would be like a 50% growth of digital revenue in the first year. And then maybe like we have a breakthrough and then it's 100% on top of that in the next year. I mean, it's, but it's, it's, it's all about like figuring out how do we optimize what they have 
not trying to go and like introduce too many new initiatives, but saying like, how do we, let's optimize what you have first and then let's go and build on top of that with some of these new opportunities. So one, one last question I have for you is around ethics and you know, that's our big, big area. You know, we want to make sure organizations are operating in an accountable way and that donors are not being misled in any way. And one of the things that people tend to think about is the expense associated with fundraising. And there's some good reason for that and some not so good reason for that. The not so good reason is that organizations need to spend money to, to raise money. And so an over-focus on that is a problem because if you only want to be the only person given to that organization and tell them not spending money on fundraising. The, the good reason for it is that organizations can be abusive, meaning that some organizations will only do fundraising. They'll spend the preponderance of their money on fundraising. But what's so interesting about your approach is that Digital fundraising, I would think, is going to be least expensive than almost any other form of fundraising because you can send lots of emails and it doesn't cost much. So tell me about relative costs of this form of fundraising compared to other forms of fundraising. Well, you're absolutely right. Like, So digital is definitely a lower cost entry point. And it's also very scalable too. Like, so for example, if I'm going to go do a big event, right? I'm kind of like, I'm pot committed, right? I'm going to spend whatever, a few hundred thousand dollars putting on this event, right? Like there's no way of like kind of scaling that. If I'm going to go do direct mail fundraising, I'm going to go put a hundred thousand pieces of mail in the mail. And like, I got to pay for printing and postage and all those things. And then I got to wait three months to get all my results back with digital. I can go and like we've done this with lots of clients where we'll we'll test very small. We'll go test $100 or $300 and run an experiment like on Facebook ads, for example. We'll monitor the results. We'll then run tests to try to optimize that, improve the performance. And then once we have our metrics dialed in, that's when we start to scale and add more media spend to the campaign to to grow the, the impact. So I'd say it's definitely much more scalable than some of the other forms of fundraising that exist. And based on our research, what we know, and this is actually not something that's unique to Next After's research, everybody knows this, a donor who gives at least one gift online and one gift offline in the same fiscal year is by far the most valuable donor that you can have. They're called multi-channel donors. Yeah, They retain better. They give larger amounts of money to the organization. And it makes sense because they're you know obviously giving two gifts. So there's, there's a frequency thing. If you look at where the multi-channel donors come from, like if I take, for example, like look at direct mail acquired donors versus digitally acquired donors, the digitally acquired donor is between 209 and 14,400% higher likelihood of becoming a multi-channel donor than a direct wow. mail acquired donor. So for that reason alone, I mean, again, I'm super biased, but I'm saying, look, this is what the data is telling me. So this is where I need to start. And so what we're really kind of advocating is make your organization a digital first fundraising organization. Start with digital. Don't bolt it onto the end of a legacy program. Make it the thing that starts. And then you can start to branch out and build your other channels from there because you can dial in your campaigns. Wow. That's... uh... (laughs) 
That's amazing because there is the opportunity. And by the way, what is the uh, percentage now of money raised online, let's say, compared to other channels right now? I know a lot of times people will hear about an organization through the mail or through a TV ad, but then they'll go online and make the donation. But if the ask comes online, how much is actually raised that way? Yeah, for, for years, digital was never more than 10% of total fundraising revenue. And the year that that changed was 2020. For the first time in history, digital revenue was was more than 10%, and it was actually 13% of total revenue. Wow. And I, don't, I haven't seen data for 2021, but I, I suspect that that trend has continued. So COVID has fundamentally changed the world. Everybody knows how to use Zoom now. Everybody knows how to use digital technology much more effectively than they have in the past. And so we've seen a shift now where a lot of organizations are moving more of their fundraising operation into digital space as opposed to some of the more traditional forms. And how is acquisition handled online? Yeah. So for most acquisition campaigns, you need to have a way of reaching people. So there's some sort of media buying component, right? Where most organizations start is are with things like Facebook advertising and like Google ads. And the reason why is that you can create a model of people that look like your existing donors, and then you can serve ads just to those people. So it's much more efficient, much more targeted than if you just took a, a broader approach. So that's usually where people start. And so it's just a matter of like coming up with what are the different kind of offers? Is it a direct ask offer? Do I offer a piece of content first and get somebody to give me their email address and then cultivate them to then want to give to the organization later? And so it's a mix of those different types of yeah. approaches. Well, Tim, I want to thank you for, for joining the show today. This has been very informative. And to our guests, you've been listening to Tim Kachuriak, who is the chief innovation and optimization officer. He's also the founder of Next After, and it's a fundraising research lab consulting firm that works with businesses and charities to help them improve and optimize their fundraising. This has been very helpful, Tim. I hope we can have you back sometimes when we can explore some of the new things and new findings that you're having in your work. And we appreciate what you're doing. And to all our donors, you probably have appreciated this particular episode, but you can also find other episodes on all major podcast platforms. And by the way, if you want to support the Heart of Giving podcast, please feel free to make a donation via give.org, which is our organization's website. And you can support the Heart of Giving podcast there and also the great work that's going on at the BBB Wise Giving Alliance to help donors make informed decisions help charities demonstrate their effectiveness and their accountability. Thank you for listening. You've just listened to the Heart of Giving podcast with Art Taylor. Be sure to tune in next time for a brand new episode. To listen to our other interviews, visit heartgiving.podbean.com. That's heartgiving.podbean.com. Subscribe to our show on major podcast platforms. The thoughts and opinions expressed on this podcast are the views and opinions of the guests, not those of the BBB Wise Giving Alliance or program affiliates. This podcast is for information and educational purposes only 
and is copyrighted with all rights reserved. This podcast is protected by Podbean's Terms of Service.